and welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. In the pines and the pines where the sun don't ever shine, you'll shiver the whole night through. I'm Ian Woodworth, I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we're continuing our talk about North American cryptids. Huzzah! As we mentioned at the end of last episode, we had a request for a cryptid. I'm not sure if it was Aaron or Zach, because I'm not sure which one of them (laughs) manages the Twitter account. I think it's Aaron, but one of the co-hosts for the Some Patches Required podcast. Okay, great. Where we were guests a couple months ago. Yeah. They requested the Mothman. Excellent. And so we're going to be talking about Mothman today. We're also going to be talking about another similar monster that also has actually a bit more lore to it than the Mothman does. From a similar geographic region, we're going to be talking about the Jersey Devil. Yeah, a similar-ish geographic region. I think both sides may take some umbrage if you put them in the same boat. It's one of those weird things that are by distance close, but there is a yeah, fair there, bit of separation. There is. Um, <laughs> they're both technically mid-Atlantic, but... West Virginia catches more of the Appalachian. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Jersey is more of the coastline slash mid-Atlantic. There are some similarities, particularly culturally with who settled them. We can touch onto that, particularly like with the Pennsylvania Dutch, some of your Germans. Not as much your Scotch-Irish into Jersey. Uh, again, a slightly different European group settled there, but there's enough to share that it makes a little bit of sense overall. And they're a very similar economic demographic off and on yes the other thing is they for varying different reasons tend to be i don't know if clannish is kind of the right word but they keep to their own and they tend to be tight-lipped about things yeah insular i think is the word that 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 is the perfect word for that yes yeah so let's go ahead and get started yeah let's Uh. start with the requested one with the mothman yeah let's start with mothman mothman there's not really a huge amount surrounding the mothman mothman is a monster that first made its appearance in the mid-60s. 60s, yes. There was a spate of about 13 months, so the end of 66 to the end of 67, I believe it was, where people started reporting sightings of the Mothman. Right. And Mothman came to be seen as almost a portent of ill omen. Yeah, harbinger. Now, again, while the Mothman itself has not been accused or said to have done anything monstrous or scary, but rather just its mere presence, the location in which it shows up is interesting. The time in U.S. history in which it shows up is also interesting. And so this does bring in a good bit of psychology and kind of lore. And if this is what you're wanting to build up, if you want to bring the Mothman to the table... This becomes a question is, is the Mothman going to be an actual monster that your players would encounter? Right. And, you know, honestly, from a D&D perspective, the first thing that comes to mind with regards to the Mothman is rather than have it be a monster of some sort, having it be an Aarakocra. I could see that. That would make a lot of sense. Um, Because that's, despite it's being called the Mothman... Most of the depictions that I'm seeing of it, most of the descriptions that I've been reading of it, don't show it as having insectoid wings. No, it's fairly avian. It is. And the silhouette suggests an aracocra. Maybe an aracocra with like an owl's head as opposed to an eagle's head. I could see that. Because it does have that sort of rounded, hunched kind of look in the silhouette. 
And one of the explanations for the Mothman that was laid out in many of the articles that I read, one of the indications that was given is that the eyes would reflect red whenever you shine light on them. Right. That is a very common thing with barred owls, which are native to the area. Yes. So different animals have different constructions to their eyes where if you shine light on them, it will reflect back. Right. I grew up, as I've mentioned before, on a goat farm, and goat eyes, if you shine light on them, will reflect back green. Oh. Yeah, it's really kind of bizarre whenever... Because they have that weird iris, too. Yeah, but it's really bizarre whenever you're heading out to the barn and it's like... 11 o'clock at night and we have to (laughs) feed the pens of baby goats that we have in the barn. And so we have like 50, 60 baby goats in pens in the barn. You come out with your flashlight to see where you're going to be able to turn on the actual lights out in the barn. And you just come in and you just hear this cacophony of bleeding baby goats and all of these little green Green eyes, monsters, green eyes just (laughs) staring back at you. That's awesome. (laughs) No, I like that. And I could see an Aarakocra. The other thing, and it's something we haven't talked about too much with our podcast, but as far as a D&D or any kind of a game setting would be a wonderful trope to bring up, but just a pure red herring. Absolutely, yeah. And so you're going there, your party is there sent to investigate or to find this Mothman creature or whatever you want to call this creature. And it is something else using this mythos and it could very well be an aarakocra either as a thieves guild or a spy guild or something like that using this as a cover of some sort and i think this kind of segue is into like the actual historical incident of the mothman and and i believe it was point pleasant uh, west virginia yeah so point pleasant west virginia was also known as the tnt fields because it was actually where a lot of munitions were made for world war ii so this area was very industrialized and so the environment had kind of grown sallow over the years again this mothman has been known as a portent or a harboringer of ill omen and at the time of the mid to late 60s when this thing was initially seen or reported You have to take a look at what was going on in America at the time. You had, you know, starting to get a long string of your, like, summer serial killers. You had some presidential and highly political assassinations. You had RFK, JFK, Martin Luther King. You had, you know, heightening tensions with the Cold War between Russia and the United States. We had just gotten past the Cuban Missile Crisis. The whole incident of UFOs became very popular again. And so there was a lot of this innate tension of the things that go bump in the night and something weird going on. The other thing I was reading, too, was because, again, this was, at the time, a smaller and more insular community. It almost became like the Salem Witch Trials because it was a small community and someone saw this really interesting thing and they got a bit of notoriety from it. And so not to be left out, well, I saw it, too. Oh, I saw this, too. I saw this, too. And now everyone's claiming to see this thing. And as more people come in to investigate, 
more people are going to have claimed to have seen it because they also want, you know, a piece of that notoriety or sometimes profit or whatever else as visitors come in. And so it becomes this thing that grows within the community. It almost becomes a, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? A uh, mass psychosis. Uh, It's not quite the word I'm going for, but yeah, it becomes that thing where everybody just kind of gets caught in this mob mentality. And if you were to build this on the table for your players to walk into this, be it, you know, again, a mothman and ink inquisition something like this you could totally build this up you could center an inquisition around the mothman being the mothman maybe thinking that a devil's risen up and that has started a witch hunt or a witch craze in your town or again maybe it is aspiring maybe it is an aarakocra doing something nefarious or even doing something maybe beneficial but people don't trust the aarakocra for some reason you can do a lot to play with this without actually having a monster to fight on the table which i think leads to a lot of interesting options yeah and you can do this as a way to play off of the concept of othering because this could just be a community where they don't know what an aarakocra is they've never seen a bird person yeah that would be great and so you know they see this one maybe he's an outcast from aarakocra society maybe he's a willing hermit that's just living out in the woods okay and they've never seen this before and maybe they saw it for the first time right at dusk so they didn't get a really good look at it and then all of a sudden their brain just starts filling in all of the gaps and of course this thing has to be insidious why else would it be hiding out in the woods okay you know and just playing on that sort of concept of fear of the unknown i like that i think another thing we could do with this that would fit really well kind of going with that othering is maybe this is an aarakocra hermit maybe he she they come in, they mean well, and then kind of going to borrow off the uh, popular film Encanto, perhaps it does have the gift of prophecy to a small bay, and it's trying to warn people of this bad things that's going to happen. So it is going to be a harbinger. It is going to be a storm crow. It's saying, hey, a storm's coming. Hey, an attack's coming. Hey, there's going to be a barn burning. There's something terrible is going to happen. And then something bad happens. And then he tries to warn the community again. Hey, something bad's going to happen. And something bad happens. And so now whenever this Aarakocra shows up, it's immediately bad news. Is it causing these bad things? Obviously, it has some sort of infernal, you know, connection because whenever he says something bad or it says something bad is going to happen, it happens. And so now there's a fear and an anxiety building around this creature as well. Yeah. And, you know, we could possibly even tie into it a little bit of mythology, say something like Cassandra. Oh, yeah. Cassandra's Tears. Yes. Yeah. Where Cassandra in Greek mythology was an oracle who was able to see the truth and speak the truth but no one ever believed her. Yes, and that would be great. That was her curse. Yes, and this ties into, as I was going and reading different accounts of the Mothman, you know, and again, more with West Virginia and the Appalachia, that Scots-Irish that is found a lot through the Appalachia, you still have this kind of lore that happens in, quote, quote, the old world. So in Scotland and Ireland and throughout Europe, you do have these creatures that are harbingers. They do warn of ill tidings, And they very often are reviled because of it. Right, because rather than viewing it as a warning to prepare for the coming incident, whatever the bad thing coming up happens to be, they say, oh, it wouldn't have happened if they hadn't showed up. Exactly. They're bringing the bad things with them. Yes. And so, yeah, I think building this up on the table could be really fun. 
Or we could take the modern take of this thing and maybe the Eric Croker did steal your catalytic converter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In which case that would tie it back into a thieves ring and maybe they are using this image kind of like a scarecrow and it's keeping people away from a base of operations because there's this giant scary thing that no one goes near. Or they're using it purely as a decoy, as a thing to keep everybody's attention focused on as misdirection. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. You know, because they're going and getting this whole community all riled up. And so now, suddenly, if anything goes missing, oh, the Mothman took it. Oh, yeah, the Mothman totally stole it. Exactly. Or they're so focused on the Mothman that they could run any kind of number of operations behind that no one's going to notice until after. Or maybe they're just going to form a Mothman removal service and make the Mothman go poof because it is something they've completely created. Yeah, very uh, Dragonheart. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or And what I'm thinking is, you know, they get the populace riled up to form a mob, to go out into the woods to find and deal with Mothman once and for all. And now town is empty. Oh, that's... And they can just walk through and, and clean out the houses however oh, they want to do. That would be vicious i love it (laughs) it is the ultimate misdirection right and it it could be purely illusion it could be yeah i mean illusion magic is absolutely a school (laughs) absolutely yeah you know just have a programmed image you know have a couple of really talented wizards with programmed image and just be able to run yeah i mean really you could have a wizard or a bard Again, with, oh, yeah, with like illusion, a bard, yeah. and then a couple with some cantrips of prestidigitation for sound and light, and minor illusion, and you've got everything you need. Yeah. Or you could even incorporate some enchantment magic and, like, actively be giving these people hallucinations and oh. using suggestion to say, oh, I saw something over there. Yes. And, you know planting those seeds in the populace to where they really think that that's the case, even if they didn't actually see it. That would be another thing, too, is slightly, I don't want to say poisoning the population, but it would be almost like the old uh, European uh, werewolf things. A lot of people think it was tied into the ergot syndrome with the uh, rotten rye bread that caused mild hallucinations. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, so I think Mothman, again, if you wanted to try to build this up as a table monster, you could. It would be difficult. This, I believe, gives so much more opportunity for building roleplay and player immersion on the table. Yeah, I think Mothman is much better as a world-building and role-playing aid yes, than it is just a stat block to throw on the table. Right, and God knows I love Monster of the Week. I absolutely love Monster of the Week because I love seeing things that, you know, okay, yay, another horde of goblins. Hey, another horde of orcs. I mean, you kind of get used to it. So when you see something new, it's fun. But again, that immersion is what makes a game memorable. And so having that there... And you can still bring interesting things. Maybe you have all of our cryptids thrown in at once and you're doing like a Scooby-Doo type thing. And sometimes the trail is just a false trail. And that is a very real thing. Sometimes it's a rich old white man in a mask. Exactly. (laughs) More often than you know. Yes. (laughs) All right. So, yeah, like I said, I don't know if we want to try to flesh out Mothman a bit more, especially since it's been requested. It makes it really hard to like, here's this, here's what we think. I say we probably talk about our our next critter and then we come back and maybe try to flesh these two out and see how we could set up a scenario where we could use both of these. Though we've pointed out quite a few with Mothman already that I think would work very well. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, let's go ahead and move on to the Jersey Devil. 
So the Jersey Devils one I grew up with, again, I grew up between Central California and Central Jersey just because of where my parents lived at various points during my life. And so, like I said, this was one I grew up with. And this is kind of neat because a lot of our North American cryptids are very, very modern. I mean, we have Mothman from the 60s. Our last episode, we had Chupacabra from 95. 95. Well... In fairness, the first instances of something doing what would later be attributed to the Chupacabra started being reported in the 70s. Fair enough, yeah. But still, yeah, that's only 40 years. Yeah, that's fairly new. But uh, the Jersey Devil is a little bit older than America itself, which is kind of nice. Before it was the Jersey Devil, as Ian pointed out, it was the Leeds Devil. Yes. And so this one has a bit more of the tie to the European mythologies with the Fae and things like that. Miss Leeds was expecting her 13th child. And the story varies. Either she said this child's going to be the devil when she found out because 13 children's a lot to take care of. Yeah, or and she said also the numerology around behind it. Right. Yeah, 13 being an unlucky number. Right. Your seventh child, very, very lucky. Your 13th child, a bit less so. So she either said this child will be the devil or she said devil take the child as in she was so exasperated to find out that she was expecting again. Either way, this had supposedly invoked the devil himself. And so once the child was born, it immediately morphed into this creature that has several different descriptions depending who you listen to. But by and large, it had the head of a horse, the torso of the human, wings of a bird and claws. And then wings it, of a bat. Wings of a bat okay yeah bat or bird and then it flew out of the room yeah it also had cloven hooves cloven hooves yeah and the tail hooves. yeah and the tail i forgot um, about because both those, yes. the popular story suggests that once the transformation was complete it went and walloped everybody in the room with its tail and then flew up the <laughs> chimney and escaped well i mean they say that children can hear what's going on inside the womb and i'm sure it heard a bunch of smack talk and it was like you know what screw the shit yeah <laughs> And Can't the, blame it too much. And one of the very important details is that it has a blood-curdling scream. scream. Yes, and so the scream is what it is known for largely. And so, again, this ties back, I believe the myth began in 1775. 1735. 1735, okay. That's the first date that I saw. Okay. But there is an account that I didn't go into and read more of, but the Lenape, I think is how you pronounce it, the indigenous people who lived in that area before the Europeans showed up, Okay, also had a creature in their mythology Yes, that fit kind of this description a little bit. It kind of does. Um, the spirit was called Imsing, I think, is how you're pronouncing it, which sometimes took the form of, quote, a deer-like creature with leathery wings. Yes, and this borders up against a very popular native creature that we have mentioned that we will not say the name, but begins with a W that, again, comes from largely the Algonquin people, which roots through there. So you have the Iroquois and others, that, and they lived further north and along the Appalachia as well, but they traded as far south as through Georgia. So, I mean, they traded up and down. And that kind of skinny, ravenous, deer-headed looking thing falls within a lot of culture's lore through that region. And so I do personally wonder if there was a tie-in with that as well. Well, I mean, that is... Creatures that show up in your mythology are going to be based on the things that you experience. They're going to be based on anomalous examples yes. of everyday things. So right. this emaciated sort of looking deer, or, you know, it might just be an instance of 
because this does tend to happen sometimes. Perhaps a deer got captured by a wolf or a bear and got disemboweled, but got away. And right. it wasn't quite dead yet. You know, wounded, the, the, but the, not. Yeah, a wounded deer with, you know, its skin flapping. Right. And its entrails hanging out or completely ripped out that just hasn't died yet. Right. That to me says, you that know, a sounds... deer a deer like creature with wings. Yeah, no, that, that would, sounds that would pretty not, terrifying. Yeah, and that would not be too terribly I mean, it wouldn't be a common occurrence. No. But it would be just messed up enough to start a mythos. To start a mythos. No, I totally get that. And very different from the Mothman, the Jersey Devil has actions associated with it, and it is very much known to make people, we will say, disappear into the pines. So the central area of Jersey, this part of the Mid-Atlantic, is known as the Pine Barrens. And it's a, it's a wonky little area. It's not wonky. It can be nice. It can be pretty. But again, the soil tends to be not the best. The trees tend to be a little scraggly. There's a lot of mist coming up from the ground. So it does hold kind of this creepy natural vibe. It does have a bit of odor because there's a lot of salts and metals in the soil as well. Plus you have the breakdown of these molds and things like that. So it's not quite a full swamp yet because it's very sandy. If it wasn't sandy, I could see it being almost like a fin or a bog. But because that water can drain some into the soils, it looks a bit different. But it has that feel to it. You know, that swamp feel. And so, again, people were known for a long time to disappear into this. And as Ian stated, the thing the devil is known for is this blood-curdling scream. Also know this point of Jersey is where a lot of smugglers would unload cargo to bring in so they didn't have to pay various taxes on. And when government agents, be they British or later federal agents, went in to look to see what was being brewed in these pines or what was being smuggled or transported through these pines, these federal agents sometimes didn't walk out. And so hearing a blood-curdling scream from an insular group saying, hey, I heard a scream. You didn't hear anything, son. No, I heard something. It was the Jersey Devil. Right. And that explains where the people went poof. Yeah. And again, you know, talking about the sort of people who engage in those sorts of illicit activities, it is very common for them to booby trap their areas. Exactly. Yes. And so it would not be beyond the pale to say, you know, the excise man who is going to investigate to see if there's a smuggling ring back here trips over a booby trap and something particularly nasty happens to them that is not immediately fatal. Yes. That would elicit some certain sounds. Yes. And then you're going to, if they do extract themselves, they're not going to say, hey, I fell into a pit or a tree hit me. Looks like the Jersey Devil got you because there was nobody around. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then coming through to the modern area, I mean, this area has still been used for we will say similar purposes, especially in the 60s and 70s when the mob was more of a big thing. This was a good place to lose certain points of evidence like bodies. They just kind of go poof. Right. And again, so even in a modern sense, you know, again, people being insular, people not necessarily wanting to talk to outsiders. And if certain activities were happening and there was a certain scream before an end event, that absolutely was the Jersey Devil. Right. And so bringing this one on the table, again, we could do this one as a red herring or a 
society mark up again and we could do it along those lines very similar to the mothman but i think the jersey devil does lend itself a bit more to a stat block and a table creature yeah i would agree and there are numerous devils yes in D that we could draw from Absolutely. as inspiration the monster that i first thought of whenever i was reading about the jersey devil as a potential base to build off of is a demon that appears in 5e in Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes called the Bulazau. Okay. It's sort of a very gaunt, goat-headed demon, which plays into sort of the description of being a very gaunt, very slender, almost stretched depiction that you see with the Jersey Devil. It has the horns, a goat head sort of fits into that horse-headed or horse-faced sort of description that you get sometimes with the Jersey Devil. The only real drawback to that is that it doesn't have wings, so that would be the first thing we would have to do. The Bulazau is considered a very aggressive demon, and it is also a harbinger of pestilence, so that sort of plays into the sort of fetid area that the Jersey Devil is said to inhabit. Well, again, the Pine Barrens themselves aren't quite fetid. They're actually, again, it is, I'm not going to say vibrant. There is a life there, but it is dry and swampy. So I can kind of see that because molds and mosses do proliferate here quite well. And unfortunately, you know, Jersey does have that old mythos of the odor from, you know, a lot of the dumping from the northern parts. And again, this area does have that swamp feel. This would fit. The two things I would definitely change. It does have that barbed tail attack, which I like. So yes, it will need wings. It absolutely needs a claw attack. I would almost want to add a terror ability, something more it, it than needs, frightened. It needs a scream. It needs a scream and it needs to create fear. It needs that terror ability. More than just being frightened, it has to shock people. Yeah, I think we might be able to draw inspiration on that account from the Banshee. Yeah. Because the Banshee has that scream ability that, if I remember correctly, not only causes fear but also deals psychic damage yes that would be perfect but you had another yeah so option. i was i was looking in this because uh, the bully Zhao is demonic and not quite devilish and within D there is a difference and so the one i was looking at was and i can never say this thing quite right but the abishal and this is a devil and draconic mix almost and again you do get that elongated not quite horse looking face but you do get that longer look it is winged a lot of them do have the draconic tail as well as claws right and the abishai are actually a very good fit because a lot of the descriptions of the jersey devil that i was finding do have that sort of draconic aspect to them it is presumed that the original description of the Jersey Devil or the Leeds Devil actually plays into the arms of the Leeds family, which had a wyvern oh, on it. That that pulls in really well. I was unaware about that. A wyvern being a dragon-like Dragon creature, right. which uh, only has the rear legs and the the forelegs are incorporated into the, the wings. wings. Correct. And so that sort of silhouette of a standing wyvern would fit pretty closely to the description of the Jersey Devil. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And given that the Leeds family were 
fairly unpopular at the time. Well, you know. <laughs> because the initial member of the Leeds family was creating an almanac, and he was a member of the Quaker community in yes. the area. And they strongly condemned him for releasing this almanac, saying that it was creating too many ties to paganism and the occult, which were considered blasphemous. Correct. And so he just doubled down yeah. on it and uh, ended up leaving the Quakers and converting to the Anglican Church, I believe it was. I'm not sure who he who, uh, converted. Um, it was another another one of the Protestant groups. And he ended up throwing his lot in with, at that time, the current governor of New Jersey, who was very unpopular with the Quakers. Yeah, that'll happen. And at one point, his almanac ended up in direct competition with Benjamin Franklin and his oh Poor my. Richard's almanac. I was unaware of that. And ultimately, there was a feud between the Leeds family's art almanac, uh, particularly once his son took over, wherein Benjamin Franklin, in Poor Richard's Almanac, actually predicted the death oh. of Thomas Leeds. And even though he got the year wrong by like five years, it became a running gag that after that particular date that he declared that Thomas Leeds would die, it was actually Thomas Leeds' ghost that was writing the almanacs. <laughs> In subsequent years. The original Ghostwriter. And I love Benjamin Franklin. The man was hyper-intelligent. He, he's done a lot of stuff for the scientific community, which I'm fond of. Very active in the early government of America, which, you know, I tip my hat to him. All of that being said, Benny Boy could be quite catty. I, I'm just going to throw that out there. He could be just extremely a little bit. catty. <laughs> just a little bit. So, yeah, I could see something like that happening. I did not know there was that feud. Again, a about the area where this was, for those unaware, Leeds Point, Central Jersey, and Philadelphia are really just across the Delaware River. In fact, in Central Jersey, where I grew up, there is a place called Quaker Bridge Mall. And they have a sign there as the point where Washington crossed the Delaware in the famous picture. Now, we don't know exactly where Washington crossed the Delaware in that event, but this is one of the highly likely places. So again, these places are fairly close to each other as well. So I could definitely see that kind of friction between these two groups going, which is just, <laughs> it's just yeah. funny. Because, you know, if they were more distant, I don't think that that rivalry would have sprung Start, up. Yeah. I mean, say, if Leeds had been in the Carolinas, right. even, just because of the geographic distance. Yeah. Because you're talking about a time before the automobile, before trains, even, in the continental U.S. But I mean, when there, there were Trains were very much in their infancy in Europe at that point. Yeah. But when you're an afternoon's horse ride from Ben Franklin's doorstop, he, yeah. he's going to throw some shade. Yeah. Especially whenever you're directly competing with his product. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I honestly think that your suggestion of using the Abishai as a baseline to build off of actually works really well. Okay. There are certain depictions of the Jersey Devil which show it having sort of a reddish tint to it. Yes. Some of them have more of a blackish coloring. I think that's because both of those colors are... Popular draconic. Yeah. They're popular draconic motifs. So, that said, or the Jersey demonic motifs. Yeah, that said, the Jersey Devil in a lot of 
popular depictions within the state show it as a red devil. Yes. So again, we could color this thing whatever color we want. It would lead into these as well. Yeah. But there are red Abishai. Yeah. So that would be a good place to start from. And in order to more accurately tie it into the mythology of the Jersey Devil as opposed to the mechanics of the Abishai, I would say replace its fire breath with this screen. Perfect. So going off of what the Banshee is capable of, because I suggested we should tie into that, the Banshee in 5e with its whale, if you fail your saving throw against it, you're immediately dropped to zero hit points and fall unconscious. Okay. I think that might be a bit off. I mean, if you succeed on the saving throw, you still take, uh, what is it, uh, 3d6 psychic damage. That's a bit much. I'd either make that saving throw like a 5, something incredibly low. The saving throw is a DC 13. Okay. That, that's... that's It's a DC 13 con save. Okay, yeah. That's um, not terrible. I would, I would change it from a con save to a wisdom save. Okay. Because you are directly affecting their perception. perception? Okay. And rather than have it drop them to zero hit points on a failed save, I would still let them, say, save for half damage and just make it a certain amount of psychic damage and then treat it with the same sort of mechanics as a turn undead yeah, sort of thing. To where if they fail their saving throw, they must flee from it. Yeah. They have to use their full movement to get away from it. They can't get close to it. You know, well, if we're doing that, the Abishai does have just innately the, quote, frightening presence. Right. It does have that fear aura around it. And we could even just tie it into that and give it a scream. I mean, we could give it the scream for range. At that point, the scream could just be flavor if we're giving it the frightening presence. Well, I think the frightening presence is actually an action because that's how dragons work. Okay. You use your frightening presence... As an action. As an action, and then you do your multi-attack. Okay. And so that would be a thing to keep in mind as well. But I think because the Abishai still have their draconic breath weapon. Right. I think replacing the breath weapon with with the scream. scream, Okay. So that way they're dealing a little bit of psychic damage and causing this fear effect. Yes. And basically what I would suggest is rather than have it be like most fear effects where it lasts for a minute or until they save, and once they save, they're immune for 24 hours. Have it be a one-round duration. Okay. And just put it on the recharge, like the breath weapon. Okay, put it on a five or six. Yeah, and so that way, you know, they can just cone breath weapon this scream. Everything in that cone has to make the save. If they fail their save, they have to run away. Oh, I'm seeing this as a DM, because actually, because now, instead of everything running away, you can point this, and you could fear, you know, half, two-thirds of the party, isolate that rogue, or isolate that sorcerer or wizard, and just pounce on them, and shred them, and then, if they come back, then you just hit them with another scream, Yeah, you know, assuming it's recharged, but... Yeah, and this also... Because it's probably going to have, like, a 30-foot range, right? And so, you would be able to get... Some of the ranged enemies, in addition to anyone who is up close in melee range. Yes. And what you're able to do in that case is, even if only two of the five creatures that you target actually fail their saving throw and have to flee, 
Now it's a one on three instead of a one on five, absolutely, which greatly improves their survivability. Yes, because action economy is a thing. <laughs> yes, I would make that scream a bonus action. Okay. The other thing, I mean, we are absolutely going to have to have a claw attack. So I would say a multi attack oh, yeah. with claws, two claws and a tail, two claws and a tail. But I want that tail to be able to reach out and touch someone. I would say a ten foot spear attack with the tail. Yeah. Okay. I can make that work. Do we want two claws and a tail, or do we want a claw, a bite, and a tail? Ooh, yeah, a claw, a bite, and a tail could work really well. Yeah, especially if we are keeping it sort of that draconic Abishai baseline. Yeah, no, I like that. Because a horse-headed thing isn't necessarily going to have the teeth. Right. I mean, horse bites are nasty. Uh-huh. Don't get me wrong. Horse bites can be nasty. Horse bites too. <laughs> yeah. I've been bitten by a horse before. Horse bites can be nasty, but they're not dragon nasty. No, they're not. So that would be something that we could play with as okay. well. I like this temperament. This thing is going to be territorial. Absolutely territorial. Absolutely territorial. Absolutely chaotic. Almost certainly evil because, again, it is devil slash demon. So, Well, in that case, we would have to figure out whether it is going to be devilish or, or demonic, demonic. Because demons are chaotic lawful. evil. Devils are lawful evil. <sighs> Oh, see, now I could see it because, again, tying it in with that whole almanac thing. And you could make this thing extremely lawful and tie it in with star phases or things like that, celestial phases. That could be fun. We're just pure chaos. I love chaos. That's the term chaos. Woohoo. Oh, I don't know on that one. Devil's in the name. Again, we can tie it in with the almanac and make it somehow celestially tied. Or even seasonally something with like the tides or the moon phase or something like that. Yeah. This pops up at certain times of the year, which would be really fun. Again, something celebrated more so when I was in Jersey, less so in other places, but quote, quote, Devil's Night. It was the night before Halloween where all the creepy things came out, kind of just an extra spoopy day. Yeah. You know, so that would definitely tie in with that time of the year type thing as well. Ooh. Yeah, let's go ahead and make this lawful evil. Okay. So, yeah, that would be where I would go with it. Okay, yeah. Um, now, there was one other cryptid that came up in my research that is similar to the Jersey Devil and from a similar geographical region. This is from Central Maryland, the D.C. area. Okay, so we're filling in that middle ground here. We're filling in that middle ground here a little bit. And this is called the Snallygaster. Which is a great name. It's an amazing name. (laughs) It has its roots in the German settlers that came to that region. And it is a bastardization of the term Schnellergeist, which is fast ghost. Okay. And this is sort of a, almost like a siren type creature. It is half reptile, half bird. It has a metallic beak with teeth. Interesting. I'm kind of seeing like something like, almost like a monitor lizard or like a crocodile or fast alligator. Kind of. Okay. But it has wings and in some depictions it also has octopus tentacles. Oh my. Yeah, it is quite bizarre. Interesting. Now too, again... Through this period, we're looking, you know, at the revolutionary period, especially in the mid-Atlantic. Again, there is a large German influence. You had a lot of Dutch settlers. You had some German settlers. And of course, as we all know from the legend of Sleepy Hollow, we had the Hessians. Mm -hmm. And so I could see something along this line, you know, because the Hessians were generally a mounted unit because they weren't poor. You know, you're not going to hire a poor soldier from Germany to come and do your fighting for you. So, yeah, I could see something like that. Yeah, and apparently this is the reason why 
a lot of the barns and such that you see in the area have the seven pointed stars on them. Okay. And because see, that was a symbol that was used to drive off this creature. Okay. And that's a neat thing too, especially, and again, going North Pennsylvania, we have the Pennsylvania Dutch. In the region, this Eastern Tennessee and Western Virginia, Southwestern Virginia, not the state West Virginia, but Southwestern state of Virginia, a lot of people put quilt patterns and stuff on their barns. Uh, you have a similar thing at the Pennsylvania Dutch, but instead of quilt patterns, they are generally either some sort of geometric pattern or otherwise like that. They do look like a quilt pattern, but they are supposed to convey some form of good luck or other meaning. And so the seven-pointed star for the Snellygast is, is kind of neat. Yeah, um, and a lot of the quilt square depictions that you see... I'm not 100% certain because I haven't really studied this area a whole lot, but quite frequently, whenever they were first used, they were used as signals for the Underground Railroad for uh, escaping slaves because certain patterns would mean certain things, kind of like hobo code. Right. And so I actually do docent at the William King Museum, and I do talk about this. Unfortunately, this is a wonderful story we have. We have no first-person evidence of this we have no primary sources that this happened and so we are there are groups that are looking for a base code for this to say yes this is we have the oral history that they did it but we don't have anything like a key or anything to physically and prove that yet and i'm hoping we find it i would hope so too but it makes sense it really does it makes a whole lot of sense that there is no written exactly example of this because you don't want that written documentation of this is what all of these symbols mean exactly falling into the hands of the slave catchers <laughs> exactly Exactly. Because um, now they'll be able to just ride along and they'll see this quilt hanging up and they're like, oh, these people are complicit <laughs> in the escaped slaves. Exactly. So we're just going to go and harass them and, you know, we'll be able to do our job easier. Exactly. And so that is a really fun point of history in the area. And like I said, I know there are groups trying to find some more concrete proof. For that. that is one of those things that if it's not true... I really, 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 really hope it's true because, and this type of coding within quilting and blankets has been used throughout history. Tale of Two Cities has a great example exactly, of that Exactly, yeah. yeah. I was about to mention that uh, <laughs> the knitting and the different stitches being able to be translated. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I think that kind of wraps us up unless we want to go ahead and further flush out the Jersey Devil with an actual stat block. Uh, I mean, we can just generically okay. do it. So stat-wise... For the Jersey Devil, I think this is going to be another one, kind of like the Chupacabra, that is more dex and less strength. Yes, though I think this is going to carry a much higher CR to it. Absolutely, yeah. I'm thinking something in the CR 6 to 8 range, Yeah, maybe? I could see that, because this is going to confront a party on its own. This is a thing of nightmares and terror. Yeah, and it, like you mentioned, it is very territorial, and it's not going to stand by and let other things encroach on its territory without response. Right. So this would be something that maybe a plus one or a plus two to strength and then a plus three or plus four even to dex might be okay. I could see that. While it is winged, I am apprehensive giving it a fly speed. I would give it a heightened 
jump length and height. We could do it as in it can only fly for 1d4 consecutive rounds and then it has to land and then it can't fly again for a minute. Okay. And that would give it a fairly low fly speed as well because while it is gaunt looking, it is still heavy bodied. I would give it a fly speed equal to its movement speed, so 30 feet. Okay. But that would also give it the chance for some maneuverability. It would allow it to do flyby attacks with its tail. And scream, which... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And if we're giving it the scream as a bonus action, it can bonus action scream. And if something that is in melee range with it turns and runs, it can use its reaction then as an attack of opportunity on that creature as it's running away. Okay. With the wings, and again, this is just my visual perception, because again, the pine barrens, these are pine trees. They're not huge trees. They're, you know, two, three feet across They're not massive, but I could see this climbing up a tree kind of like some of the larger bats and doing a drop attack for an ambush attack. Yeah, I think that it would definitely be using its wings to glide. Yes. And in that case, because it's going to be going up into trees, I would also give it a climb speed. Yes. A climb speed equal to its movement speed. So it's got 30 foot move, 30 foot climb, 30 foot fly. Okay. But the flight is limited, so it can only fly... For one to four rounds at a time. Before it has to land. Before it has to land. Okay. And then once it lands, it has to stay landed. It can't fly again for another minute. So it has to wait a full minute before it can fly again. I like that. That sounds correct. This is going to be primarily a terrestrial creature with wings. Almost kind of like a sugar glider in a way where the sugar gliders themselves can't fly, but they can glide for days. Yeah, sugar gliders, flying squirrels. Yeah. Those sorts of creatures, yeah. Even some of the birds in this area, like wild turkeys. Yeah. Wild turkeys are (laughs) capable of short flight. They like to roost in trees because it gets them away from predators. Yeah. But they can't fly the way that a lot of other birds do because they're just too big. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Intelligence, this thing is going to be intelligent. Absolutely. Yes. I would say a plus two to three on intelligence. I'm going to say probably about a plus two. Plus two? We don't okay. want to overstat it too, yeah. too much. And again, it's not using anything as far as the way of magic. So that's not the wisdom score. It's going to be fairly perceptive, I yeah. think. Especially if it is that territorial. It's going to be paying attention to its surroundings because it wants to know if something is encroaching. Yeah. Um, Constitution-wise, uh, probably a zero to plus one. Uh, I, I'd do a plus one to plus two. Okay. I, I mean, it doesn't look... Very imposing, but I think, especially if we're making it a fiend, it's going to be kind of hardy. Okay, fair enough. Um, And it might, we might be able to add into its hardiness less through its hit points and more through damage resistance. Yeah, it is going to have some damage resistance. Its constitution's absolutely, it's it's dump score. This thing is not trying to charm anybody. It's saying GTFO now. Yeah, charisma, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, it's saying GTFO. So that charisma I could see as like somewhere like a seven or an eight. Perhaps. I, I would even go as low as six. Six? I could see a six, yeah, because this thing is hideous. Yeah. Um, again, from the myth, it was this aberration from birth. So, yeah, absolutely. That charisma score sucks. <laughs> yeah. Hit points? Hit points. D10? So, uh, if it's a medium-sized creature, it's going to have a D8 hit die. Okay. For a CR six to seven, I'm thinking somewhere in the neighborhood of about 12 to 14 hit dice. Okay. So, a 12... 12 hit die would be around 54 hit points plus con mod. Okay. That seems a little squishy for a CR6. In a D&D context, yeah, 
probably, but we're also going to be adding in all of the damage resistances. Okay. I mean, so if we're going to go off of the fiendish template that they have in 5e, it's going to be immune to fire. It's going to be immune to poison. Yeah. For starters, we can give it resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, slashing from non-magical sources. That would be another thing that would do it. Again, those winners get kind of cold. I'd give it some cold resistance. Uh, No? Okay. No, because it's not an Arctic climate. Okay. So I wouldn't tie too much into that. Okay. Personally. I think that non-magical damage resistance would be... Enough. The big thing. Thing. Okay. Um, Because now the party has to have magic items in order to properly combat it. Yeah. And by the point you're facing a CR 6-7 monster, you should generally have plus one weapons at least. Right. With the multi-attack, three attacks per round, you do three claws and a three claws, two and a bite, or a bite claw tail. Bite claw tail and... Uh, the scream as a bonus. The scream as a bonus action. So it's going to have an awful lot of offense. Fence. Yeah. And that's what's going to really ramp, ramp up. It up. And I would even give it legendary actions at this point. Okay. I mean, it's on the low end for what you would want to give legendary yeah. actions to, but it fits it the does. theme. So what kind of legendary action do you want this thing to have? For one, it's going to be able to hit something with its tail as a legendary action. Okay. For, I don't know, uh, because I'm not real familiar with the mythology behind it, so I don't know what sort of extra things we can throw in that would be thematic. I think, I think as a legendary action, it can produce a venom from the tail. So if you choose to use that with your legendary action, that tail becomes envenomed. Or just set that up as a... One point tail attack, two points the venomous tail attack. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that would be good. And then maybe have one action to do like a disengage. Okay. Yeah. Where they they disengage, they flap their wings, and they move half their movement speed. Right. Because again, we have negated the fact this is a cryptid. This is not something you see all the time. So if it wants to remain unseen, it's going to. Absolutely. And this also helps it because it is probably going to be a solitary creature. Yeah. And this will help it stand up a little bit better to a full party. Right. And it gives it a way to escape from a hostile situation. Right. Because it you can spend a point to use the disengage action so it doesn't attract attacks of opportunity unless the creature has the sentinel feet. Right. And then it gets... 15 feet of movement. Okay. So that gets it out so that it's avoiding a flank maybe, or, you know, just able to position itself into a more advantageous spot. I am going to go ahead and give this the one magic thing it does need. It either needs expeditious retreat or dimensional door to bamf out. Cause I could see something's going to approach the party. And if it loses, it's going to bamf out and then pursue and hunt and wait for an opportunity as an ambush predator. Um, that could be a thing. I mean, you were talking a little bit about the environment that there's a lot that mist and fog and things are fairly common. Yeah, misty step. Oh, a misty step would be perfect. Give it a misty step that, you know, it can use once per short rest. I'd even say once per long rest. Potentially. Yeah. Because again, this is going to be a thing if it's completely outclassed, it is going to extract itself and wait for a better opportunity. Yeah. Okay. That can work. We have made something kind of scary for the table. Yeah, I like it. I do too. I mean, it'll take a little bit of tuning once I actually start writing stuff out to get it 
dialed into the challenge rating where we want it. But I think we have a decent framework. No, we, we have a good skeleton. Yeah. Yay, Skellymans. Yay, Skellymans. <laughs> All right, I think that brings us about to the end of today's episode. Yeah, I think so. I think we did really well. While, again, the Jersey Devil absolutely lends itself to a table creature, the Mothman, as a scenario setup, or even a story hook, or even just a storyline centered on the Mothman, I think lends itself to a better story, personally. The Jersey Devil is going to be a one and done, but that Mothman, you can come back to it session after session after session. I think that has a great amount of lore to build for that, which I would love to see at a table. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, or if you have a cryptid that you want to suggest us cover in our next episode, send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our What's the word I'm looking for? Our tiny bit of inertia over on Twitter at UCT Homebrew. <laughs> Before it fully burns into X. <laughs> yeah. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, and Mastodon at UndercommonTaste. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash UndercommonTaste. That's where our write-ups go. I'm working on getting several of these cryptids put together so that I can start getting back in the habit of putting stuff up onto the Patreon I'm hoping to get it to where I am releasing content on the Patreon every other Wednesday opposite whenever our episodes come up. Excellent. And again, not to put too much on the table, but again, our cryptid collection would be amazing. Just a a portfolio as a here is everything at once and dropped. And if we get everything written up, maybe that is something we can pursue later. Yeah. We also have an itch store under commentaste.itch.io. That's where our liminal horror adventure beneath the lake and my solo rpg forever home can be found for three dollars each and again if you are a member of our patreon you get those for free Woohoo! so that's a thing to think about and finally we are on discord you can find a link to the discord in our show notes and we would love for you to come and chat with us and if you want you can just come into our Discord and suggest cryptids. Yeah, that'd that would be great. That would be the simplest way to make sure that we see it. <laughs> if this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We're so happy you found us. You can find our other podcasts wherever you find your podcasts. As always, please subscribe. Give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what kind of content you want to hear more of. Stay safe. Stay away from the cryptids. Stay out of the forest at night. And we will see you all in two weeks. Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Under Common Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash davidsutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe, and we'll see you then.